welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining us. Our interview guest today is Chris Whittingham. Seriously, what? I'm not kidding. <laughs> it's you. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for this. But before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including on-site coverage of every U.S. men's national team World Cup qualifier. That's grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription right now. In segment one, Chris and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Chris in segment two. Let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? I'm doing all right. Uh, before we recorded, before we started recording, I said to you, I'm ready with questions for you because during Levitard's show, uh, my head is sometimes spinning. So I read the email and like it was one of those where it's like I'm trying to draw the key words and you feel like your brain is absorbing it. But it turns out I, I, I knew there was an interview between us. I just thought that I was the one doing the interviewing. Maybe at some point, Chris interviews Grant will, will feature on the podcast. But today it is the other way around. I, I think that was very kind of you to to prepare to interview me, even though you didn't understand the email I sent because you were in a rush with Levitard. I was flying back today from, this is Wednesday, by the way, uh, from Barcelona, uh, finally home after two weeks. Uh, went to Venice, went to Doha, went to Barcelona. Really good reporting trip. Uh, very lucky to be able to do stuff like that, but also really glad to be home and, um, and psyched to interview you, which is something that we should have done a long time ago, to be honest. This is episode 202 <laughs> of the show. Yeah. And you've been with me It would be slightly presumptuous of me to go, hey, Grant, I have a great idea for a guest for next Thursday. It's, how about me? So Almost I feel like as ridiculous is, as if I had sent you an email this morning, I'm the guest. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? On second thought, me misreading that was, was a real blunder. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into the interview session, uh, let's talk a little bit about the news because we've got a little bit in the soccer world. Um, since the last time we recorded on Sunday, Russia got banned by FIFA from, uh, it got suspended, I guess is the best way to put it, from uh, World Cup qualifying um, as of now. And UEFA suspended uh I guess it was Spartak Moscow, the only remaining Russian club in European competition. Also, the Russian women's team has been suspended from the women's Euros uh, and women's World Cup qualifying. So Russia finally being treated like the pariah state that it should be being treated as. It certainly took a lot of effort and pressure to get FIFA to do that, obviously, because their first announcement the day before was, oh yeah, we're gonna let Russia compete. We're just not gonna let them use their flag. It'll be like the Olympics. And thank God for Poland and the Swedes and the Czechs who said, nope, we're still not gonna play. Kick us out of the World Cup if you're gonna keep Russia involved. And I think that more than anything, was the catalyst there were a few other things to get fifa to actually do this i think but you know the ioc not that those guys should be setting examples for anybody because they haven't uh said they came out and said that uh, russia shouldn't be involved with stuff um there was a un resolution of the whole general assembly today on wednesday overwhelmingly uh condemning russia so um, that also led to some other news with Chelsea, which we'll talk about in a second. But um, 
your thoughts on on FIFA actually doing this, which I didn't necessarily think was going to happen. Yeah, I always find it fairly sad that these sort of decisions are based off of public pressure, that FIFA basically just needed cover for somebody else to do it first. Um, there has been a lot of conversation about the relationship between Gianni Infantino, the FIFA president, and Vladimir Putin. It seems like they're pals. Uh, they got along together uh, during the 2018 World Cup. And so... Yeah, I mean, it, it seems kind of like FIFA did not want to be first through that door, and they can say to Vladimir Putin if he somehow survives what he's doing right now in Ukraine as the leader, Not, I don't mean literally, I mean as, as the leader of Russia, uh, that, you know, maybe on the other side there's still a chance for FIFA and Russia to work together, and that's ultimately one of his concerns. It's very sad that public pressure, that pressure from the federations, that all these people had to do activism in order to get this organization to do the right thing. And that's ultimately what it is, is the right thing. And the fact that it took us long, so long to get there is just, it's a bummer. And you look going forward now, you wonder at some, like, at what point does Russia get allowed to compete on the international stage again? And obviously that's dependent on how they act on the international stage outside of sport. But it's just, it, it bums me out that, that we've gotten to this point and that FIFA so often looks like a organization without any scruples, without any desire to do the right thing before they're absolutely pressed into doing so. Totally agree with you. I should issue the the usual caveat that what is happening on the ground in Ukraine right now is far more important than any discussion about sports. We know this, um, but it's always worth saying. Um, but it's also, but it's also great. Isn't that instructive that? sports like there, there's so much of a conversation you know particularly during the latter stages you know like during the trump campaign and during the early stages of the trump presidency that oh you know take politics out of sports these things are inseparable and they always have been, particularly international sports like even the idea that i've heard fifa even former uh, delegates who have condemned them say, oh you know we just wanted to separate the sport from the countries w- w- within which they operate it's impossible like these two things are very connected putin i think was aware of how strong that connection is because he used the Olympic and World Cup excellence of his national teams to curry favor with his people, to grow his image within the world. And so yet again, we are reminded that these two things are inseparable. It is a microcosm of the society on multiple fronts. And we talk about many societal issues through the prism of sports. And so I am not surprised at all that this story, which is one of the defining international stories of our time, is heavily entangled with sports, which we'll get to even further in a moment. Yeah, and I would also say that it is, I think, factual to say that uh, South Africa during the apartheid era being viewed as a pariah state and not being allowed to compete in international sporting competitions did have some influence in the end, not certainly the entire influence or even the majority of influence, but had some influence in getting to a better place. Um, and so like, I, I don't want to say that sports has zero to do with anything here. And, um, and I'm glad that a, a major, you know, that major sporting organizations are doing the right thing because as we've seen with the most recent Olympics here, uh, that wasn't the case, uh, with how the IOC has dealt with Russia after all the sp- state sponsored doping after everything. Um, that said, there is an element of this before we get to Chelsea that, the court of arbitration for sport is where Russia might take this now. And the court of arbitration for sport has binding decisions. And that's a lot of what happened that 
caused the stuff with the IOC where they allowed Russian athletes to compete because the Court of Arbitration for Sport ruled on the Russians' behalf. So Russia's already said that it's possible they'll take this decision, this suspension from FIFA to uh, CAS. And, and so that to me is, you know, we're, neither one of us is a lawyer. So like, hopefully like, I can get somebody on the show before long who can talk a little bit about what CAS might do here, because I think that's something that, while FIFA has handled this poorly, they also are aware of CAS and what they could do here. And so there does need to be a process that needs to be followed. Otherwise, CAS is just going to overturn it, which they may do anyway. Right. And I mean, so you know, we'll like, see if it, that happens. I'm, I'm pretty sure in the FIFA bylaws, there is a section on if you start an international incident, you might be thrown out of competition. But, you know, very credibly, Russia can make an argument. I would presume if they do indeed take it to court that maybe there is not that cover in the bylaws that maybe, you know, FIFA has no grounds to toss them out of their competitions uh, other than the fact that they have they, well, they, they govern those, you know, like there might be a legal case for them to be made. And then there's a there, there's a decision from the other FAs, you mentioned the Polish FA and the Swedish FA and the Czech FA, um, they will all of a sudden have a decision to make whether or not they press on if they're basically told, well, Russia is allowed to play, they intend to play, and this is how it's going to be. So a lot could still happen in the next three weeks before the World Cup qualifying window. So uh, I don't know if this story is is done by any means yet. Obviously, what's happening on the ground continues in, in Ukraine, and it's awful. Um, so... Uh, let's talk a little bit about Chelsea here on Wednesday afternoon. We're recording this. Roman Abramovich follows up his previous press release when which he had said he was going to remain owner, but he's going to uh, put the club Chelsea with the charity stewardship folks from Chelsea. That did not go over well. The, the charity was like, nah, I don't think we want this. Uh, and then... Clearly what's happening here is Roman Abramovich, friend of Putin, oligarch, lots of ill-gotten money there, by the way, um, from over the years that he used to buy Chelsea and so many other things, um, is facing sanctions in the UK, as are other oligarchs from Russia who have put a lot of money into the British economy over the years. London is full of oligarchs. Um, and so... Uh, Abramovich comes out on Wednesday, says and confirms reports that he is selling the club. Uh, this may happen as soon as Friday. And uh, one of the the most prominent groups is our old friend Todd Bowley, who <laughs> recently failed, tried and failed to buy uh, the NWSL's Washington Spirit, but now he's going to get Chelsea, <laughs> um, which is kind of wild. He's also uh, an owner of the LA Dodgers and a heavy hitter, you know, billionaire, billionaire. Um, so lots of stuff happening here with Chelsea as a result of what's happening with Russia. What do you make of it? Well, I, I do find interesting that, you know, not only in the statement did Roman Abramovich say that he was selling the team, but he is also going to forgive the debt that the club owes him, which is, you know, to the tune of 1.5 billion pounds. So I think certainly from a from a Chelsea fan point of view, 
I don't think, and again, this is in the context of, you know, he's involved with Putin. We don't know to what extent, uh, you know, he has sued and won uh, to defend his honor against, you know, the accusations of just how close he is to Putin. So, you know, I I, I do think like there are qualifiers that are required. However, he, he like, wait, 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 he sued and settled. He didn't win. Okay, well, he got money for it. And and and, and the, the company had to issue a statement, right? So it, either way, uh, he... You know, like we don't know the extent to which he's connected to Putin. We presume it's well connected to Putin. To Putin, yes. but you know, like from a from a sports fan standpoint, I mean, he's given the Chelsea fans everything that you would want out of an owner, and so I think the fact that he's forgiving the club is another step in that direction. But it just seems like PR. Everything seems like PR. Handing things to sure. the foundation seems like PR. Uh, leaking that he wants to be involved in peace negotiations in Belarus yeah. seem like PR. Uh, this seems like PR, right? He's trying to seem like the good oligarch. Um, and so, you know, from a Chelsea point of view, I can understand why if you are a fan of the team, you are now kind of wondering, all right, who's going to take over our team? Are, are they going to spend 100 million pounds on Lukaku just because they feel like we need a striker every summer, even though the financials of the club might not justify it? Like, prepare for that team to be run differently than it is now, but it's still an immensely valuable asset. And I think if this is the end of the Abramovich era, we should say that his legacy in the game, in the game, not in the world, in the game, is that he completely changed, I would say, the entire prism of ownership in global football. That no one has singularly changed the game more than Roman Abramovich because the Blue Bloods always existed, right? Uh, Manchester United, at the time it was Arsenal in the Premier League, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Juventus, or um, I'm sorry, Bayern Munich. Like, you have your Blue Bloods in every country. But Roman Abramovich offered the paradigm through which new money can come in and completely change things. And you look at what's happened with Manchester City, what's happened with Paris Saint-Germain, what's happened even to some extent, albeit they kind of grew it more organically with the Red Bull group. Um, you look at the number of clubs that have emerged, um, that is entirely because Roman Abramovich seemingly made it possible. And so he completely changed the game. You think of the, the current interest in the transfer window. That is entirely Abramovich-driven with the way that he came in and splashed cash and brought in Jose Mourinho. Heck, even launching that era of the super manager by bringing in Mourinho to manage the team after winning the Champions League with Porto. Like, the number of things that change in the globalization of the game because of Roman Abramovich are manifold. And so I do think that his impact on the game should be kind of identified here as he very clearly intends to leave it and basically has to do it in order to avoid the UK government taking over his team. Yeah, and I think that was a very good historical recap that you just gay folks off the cuff, which is very impressive, by the way. I, I would <laughs> I've been also thinking add, about this, to be fair. <laughs> I, I, I would also add, though, that I totally understand why Chelsea fans liked that for their club. I don't think what he introduced was necessarily great for the sport globally or just in Europe. Like it, it certainly has, um, in, like inequality, the gap between the haves and the haves not, have nots has certainly increased since Abramovich came in. And obviously he's not the reason for that, but if we're also going to cast him as like being this huge change agent for the sport, then I don't know if the overall health of the sport is 
higher now than it was pre-Abramovich. Um, you know, maybe clubs are run better to some extent, but there's still, there's a reason why there was a $1.5 billion debt to Roman Abramovich. It's a little bit like the media industry where we got to a point where you're just hoping that a billionaire buys your publication because that's the only way that you know it'll it'll work it'll function correctly that yeah you, 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 get, you get the you get like the benevolent billionaire yeah so it's not necessarily sustainable but the billionaire is there and so okay um that's obviously changed even more with state-sponsored money coming in for psg and man city and now newcastle mm. so states can afford to lose even more money than Roman Abramovich. And, and so that's going to change even more, I think, in the coming years, unless there's something done to, to deal with that. Super League. Um, sorry for the subliminal thing. I think Super League <laughs> is actually something that could be done. But um, it's, it is a, it's, just a, it's a fascinating situation. This is all moving very quickly. So who knows? Maybe by the time this comes out on Thursday morning, we'll have even more stuff having happened. But uh, just uh, a huge week for so much happening in the world. And then that also having an impact in the soccer world as well. Uh, one other thing before we interview Chris Whittingham is um, just a small thing. Greg Berhalter at the Liverpool-Norwich um, FA Cup game, Landon Donovan says Norwich is a giant of world <laughs> football, by the way. <laughs> we will never let him forget that. Um, but two to one, uh, Liverpool goes through. But uh, Greg Berhalter at the game, Josh Sargent comes on at ha- after the half and gets an assist on the goal. And... I would say that's a good sign for Josh Sargent potentially getting a recall to the national team this month that Greg Berhalter went to this game. Yeah, so, uh, you know, he's also sat next to Kenny Dalgleish, so he's next to the the, <laughs> the legendary Liverpool figures. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, obviously a, a really big moment for Josh Sargent to kind of be seen by the national team manager playing well. It's a signal that maybe at some point he'll get a call back into the national team and that... You know, he, he's he's back in the fold for that starting striker position, which remains open. And Josh Sargent is as qualified as anybody to refill it. But uh, I feel like his performances for Norwich have been getting better. And maybe this is a sign that he's on his way back in. I will say, if we're talking about American managers, I'm surprised that in the running order is not Jesse Marsh to Leeds. Oh, yeah. See, that happened that, as well. <laughs> yeah, that was that was rumored. And, like, that had been reported on for a while. Oh, he's in the succession plan. You right. had said on social media as well and on this podcast that uh, he, you know, was being linked with Leeds. But uh, now he's, he's taken on a big job. Leeds heading towards the relegation zone. Another huge moment for American managers in the club game to really establish themselves as, hey, if you need a you know someone to rescue, if you need someone who can lead your club, you can trust an American. This is a really big moment for Jesse Marsh. And thank you for reminding me. You can tell I'm a little brain dead after crossing an ocean this afternoon. But <laughs> um, but like that's for Jesse Marsh. Like, and I said this back in early December on CBS, like, you know, Leeds had had interest in him um, for a while. And so, I, you know, Marsh was aware of that, obviously. And so I, you remember back when he lost his job with Leipzig and there were people saying, oh, he's going to take Ralph Rangnick's assistant job with Man United. 
But like if back in, in the back of his mind, Marsh knew that it would be possible to be a head coach in Europe with a team like Leeds, that would probably provide some direction and, and peace of mind as well. And maybe it's surprising to us how much Leeds has fallen off this season. They've had so many injuries, but they just weren't defending and they were getting blown away and they just got too close to the relegation zone, which is where they are right now. 12 games left and it's going to be a real challenge here. And yes, Marsh's style, the Red Bull pressing style, has some similarities with Marcelo Bielsa's style that he's had Leeds playing. They're not carbon copies. And so that to me would be really interesting to be a fly on the wall of training sessions this week with Marsh at Leeds about how much can you change on the fly when this is the thick of it right now. You're just trying to survive as a team and stay up. Yeah, and especially because it's almost like uh, in college football when they have like a head coach and he runs the triple option and you've got to figure out after you've built a team around running the triple option, like returning to normal life. Like normal life is going to be pretty hard. Now, you know, I think it's a little bit different because I think these players are used to pressing. They're just used to pressing in a particular way. And I'm just curious if like, can you undo the wiring of the training sessions and those training sessions that they call murder ball that Bielsa puts on, just getting after it and getting after it and getting after it. Like if Jesse Marsh tells them to press and then they all go man to man, you go, no, 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 not like that. And, and, and you're freaking out in the technical area. Like, I don't know how much you can undo that wiring in three training sessions. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Bielsa, for as much as we love him and for as entertaining as it can be, when it goes wrong, it just looks awful. <laughs> it's the same thing in San Jose. Like, that man-to-man pressing, and you just see these enormous gaps when you're right on the trap door. Now, I, I will remain a romantic and say he should not have been sacked or should not have wanted to go because I think he deserves the chance to fight his way out of it uh, just as he brought them into that place. Uh, but now I'm really intrigued. And Leeds, I, I always thought they were must-watch just because, like I said, it's either a car crash or it's some of the most exciting stuff you've ever seen. But now even more glued to Leeds because this is really important for Jesse Marsh. It's really important for Americans, and I think we should be watching with interest. I thought it was interesting. The contract Marsh signed is through 2025. So mm-hmm. that's three years and suggests that even if they don't stay up, that he will stay. Um, and so there's a there's an interesting challenge there for Marsh, who has come in for high-profile coaches before at previous jobs, whether it's Julian Nagelsmann, um, whether it was Mike Petke, uh, whether... <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, the, those I, two guys are in the same conversation. You, you think I'm joking when I said that, but that no. was a perfect MLS sentence because if everyone recalls Red Bulls fans were up in arms when Jesse Marsh got hired and Mike Petke lost his job and there was a whole town meeting and and a lot of angst and Jesse Marsh ends up winning the supporter shield that year with the Red Bulls and went from there but uh, Marsh has come in for, for high profile coaches before we'll see uh, how that goes this time. And, and the Leeds fans really cared about Marcella Bielsa for very good reason. And I do think that Marsh is capable 
of building that type of a bond with the Leeds fans. And this could be a very good matchup eventually. And obviously it would be huge for that relationship if he can get them to stay up over these 12 games. But I know one thing, I'm going to be watching their games. And I wasn't going to be necessarily watching all of their games (laughs) before this coaching switch. Yeah, you just hate, I mean, from Jesse's standpoint, you just hate to be the guy after the guy right? Like the guy after the guy, I mean, although like you said, he's done it before, but this is a particular brand of being the guy. When you think about how long Leeds were out of the Premier League, how, you know, there's murals of him in the city, how he built such a personal connection. Like you see all these personal anecdotes about, you know, some guy who used to bring Argentinian treats to his flat in Leeds and would leave them on the door handle, like sending him a personal message and calling him like all these like very personal touches that Marcelo Bielsa offered at Leeds, like to replace that. And like, it's not like if you're Jesse Marsh, you can fake that. Um, But I think Bielsa kind of might be the most Ted Lasso coach that there is uh, in 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 world football, without while also maintaining a steely resolve to scream at players, to press at at other men. But uh, yeah, he's got this incredible touch that Jesse Marsh has to come in and replace. Uh, by the way, I was asked to do an interview for Talksport for a piece they're running uh, before uh, the Leeds game on Saturday, and I was very specific to point out the Red Bulls forum of fans that were <laughs> shouting at him and were angry. So I'm very glad that that anecdote. Is is now being relayed on radio in the UK. So when you went on UK radio, did you get any Britishisms in? Fancy lag. <laughs> I'd have to go back and and re-listen to it, but yeah, every, every once in a while, like just to like just like say, hey, I'm one of you. Like I'll I'll sneak in. Uh, oh, what's he on about? Like something like that. So let's use that as a nice transition into our interview of Chris Whittingham, which it's. Like I've been wanting to, to learn some more things about you. I, I've gotten to know you pretty well over the last couple of years, which is great. You're doing great work in the soccer world, including on this podcast and all the broadcasting you're doing. But I'm, I don't know the, the answer to this question. When did you fall in love with the sport of soccer? So I would probably say in earnest during the World Cup of 2010. So... Mm-hmm. I, I did very much measure my life cycle in World Cups. O2, I was fairly aware of, but not entirely because it was happening in the middle of the night. Um, 06, uh, I, I knew a lot about the American team. I knew the hype and all that, but I didn't really know the players that well. I knew them from the previous World Cup. And then 2010, I had completely gone all the way in. That 09 Confederations Cup was a really big deal. And I think after that 09 Confederations Cup, you start to have like these touch point moments. It's like, okay, so Josie Altidore plays over there and Clint Dempsey plays over there. And I have to give my brother a lot of credit here because uh, he was at uh, FIU down here in Miami at the time and he had friends who were huge Premier League fans. And I actually used to make fun of him. Like, how could you possibly care about a sport that's happening on the other side of the world? This is a very myopic view of teenage Chris Whittingham. And so um, I then kind of secretly was like, oh, okay, I'll watch a game. Oh, okay, this is cool. And then uh, watch the World Cup. And then uh, when Fox had the rights to the Premier League, they used to run this show called the Premier League Review Show, which is like an hour of all the games, and there would be a voiceover person introducing it and like set you up with all characters, and they tell you about Big Sam and Steve Bruce and Jose Mourinho, and you got to know everybody. And so I watched that for like a full season as an agnostic, and then that was the year of the Aguero goal to win the league for Manchester City, and so. I was like, okay, this is this is awesome, and uh, that was when I was fully in on the club game, and then I've kind of grown on that ever since. Okay, that's interesting. And so, 
But like, obviously on Levitard's show, which you're also on in case, if there's anybody who listens to this and doesn't know that Chris does has a separate life on the Dan Levitard show, like you should check that out. You do talk about soccer to some extent on that show, but obviously you do a lot of other sports as well. So like when you were growing up in South South Florida, right? Like you're born and bred. Yeah, I, I was into the Miami Dolphins. That was kind of like my first sports love. I was like seven years old and I remember watching Dan Marino basically walk towards retirement, throwing one interception after the other, uh, a 62 to seven defeat to the Jacksonville Jaguars. But for some reason, I still really became, threw myself into the Dolphins. But yeah, I love every lo- local South Florida sports team. I was, you know, it started with the Dolphins. Then I became a really big Heat fan. Then the Florida Marlins at the time, now the Miami Marlins won the World Series early in my sports life, which, you know, should have sent me on my way as a baseball fan. But they very much did not build on that success. Uh, and then hockey, and and then actually University of Miami, the school that I ended up going to, um, would come later when I went to the school. I wasn't really that into it, despite the fact they were an amazing football program, and I kind of regret not throwing myself into it more. Um, but uh, yeah, like all the local South Florida teams, every sport, and then basically as you get into work life, as much as my life is following sports, like you kind of have to start lopping some of them off. So soccer has taken a lot of the oxygen, like maybe... I would be more into baseball if I wasn't into soccer so much. I might be more into hockey if I wasn't into soccer so much. But uh, yeah, I mean, football, American football, <laughs> association football and basketball are kind of like the sports that I most kind of zero in on. Okay. And at what point did you decide you wanted to make a career out of sports? Very early. Very early. Yeah, I was kind of very keenly. I mean, I was a massive sports fan as a kid. My dad's a massive sports fan. Our family are massive sports fans. And so... I mean, I'm I'm a terrible athlete, and so I, for whatever reason, seized upon the voice emanating from the television whenever I'd watch sports and be like, huh, that seems like an interesting way to get in this thing that I'm really interested in. Um, and so I kind of knew from when I was in, like, middle school that I wanted to go and be a broadcaster. So I kind of, like, then became... I, I really threw myself into it. I, you know, studied play-by-play people. I studied the radio. Like, this was in high school. I used to listen to AM radio in high school. And, like, I became so singularly focused on trying to do this for a living. And I guess uh, it's one of the rare times where somebody actually does that and then actually ends up doing the thing that they set out to do. I have uh, since hopefully achieved a little bit more life balance. But, yeah, this was, a, this was an obsession of mine that I've wanted to do this uh, for basically as long as I can remember. Okay. And, and how did you get tied to the Levitard show? So that was actually my foray into it, believe it or not, considering it's such a big show. Um, but... I, at the time, was a huge fan of his show. I was, again, a teenager listening to AM radio. I remember one of their clips, like, went viral on ESPN. They used to have Terrell Owens on all the time. And it was, like, the lead on the 6 o'clock Sports Center one night. And I was like, wait, that's in Miami? What do you mean? Like, how do I not know about this? And so, uh, yeah, I started listening to the show. And the show, um, I, for, for people who don't listen to the Dan Libertard show, like, they don't understand that, like, it's not just a, it's not just a show that people like. It's kind of like a... Um, a way with which you view sports content. Like once you listen to that show, you can't really go back to listening to sports in another way because it's so much more fun-based, laughter-based, and you just throw yourself into this universe of characters that's so fun to listen to. And so they, I mean, they've always, and we still do, uh, solicit listener submissions. I used to like send super long emails (laughs) into the show and they like actually kind of got to know me a little bit. 
And so uh, after one of the long emails, I kind of said, and also if you ever need an intern for anything, let me know. And they actually took me up on it. So like I was a, I was a teenager who like got to stroll in and like kind of meet like all of my heroes in a weird way. And I'm friends with all of them. Some of them are still with the show. Some of them aren't with the show anymore, but like it was, uh, it was a really cool, that was actually where I began. And I began on a career, on a path of doing sports radio more than, uh, more than broad- broadcasting, which came later. Okay. And so this is actually the phrase, never meet your heroes, not totally true. All of my heroes are more than I could have hoped for. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And I've also never asked you this, you know, so much of sports uh, culture in the city of Miami and South Florida is Spanish language. Do you speak Spanish? Um. Poorly. <laughs> uh, yeah. So basically, I need to be thrown into the deep end of the pool with like, like my my uh, entire family is Colombian. So mm-hmm. basically, like when my mom's cousins are in town and I'm in the car and I need to carry a conversation for 40 minutes, all of a sudden my Spanish gets great. But <laughs> I think like because I'm a bit of an obsessive about language, given the fact that we work in language, like I feel um naked in a way when i speak spanish because i don't feel like i have every word available to me um Mm -hmm. and so i feel like i i I get gun shy about speaking spanish but yeah if you really press me into it i can i can basically you know if if i need to i will but sometimes i'm hesitant about it which is something that i need to work on gotcha and how did you get this whole british thing about you and the whole fancy lad (laughs) so it, so it started actually in the Levitard show environment. Again, I like started watching all these uh, Premier League games, these Premier League games. I shouldn't say Premier. I'm better than that. Uh, so I started watching all these all these Premier League games, and like I was a bit of a parrot, where like I would just listen to, oh, what a lovely ball that is, and like and it was, like it would just stick in my head. And so I would just like every once in a while, I'd be like, watch, oh, what a great cross in, head it into the back post. Like I would just start doing my stupid accent in front of other people. And I actually, uh, so one time during the World Cup in 2014, I was working at the radio station. I was partly on Lebetard's show, but I was partly on other shows. And I started doing this around one of the hosts. And he's like, what if you came on and did a bit where we do serious World Cup analysis with you in your British accent? And we never mentioned the fact that you're not actually a British person. And so we did that like every day for a month, like during the World Cup, because the radio station had like, you know, sponsored World Cup segments. So I would come on every day in my British accent. And so ever since then, uh, first off, a lot of my Levitard show colleagues hate it. But um, yeah, then, you know, from there, I kind of like, I still do the accent around people. I started doing it around the show. And then uh, the Fancy Life thing was kind of born out of, you know, a couple times on the show, I would like throw ridiculous language around or I would say, oh, that's bollocks or something like that. Like just <laughs> use Britishisms around the show, intentionally trying to annoy my colleagues and the audience. I knew that it was annoying. I know it's annoying, but I do it anyway because I find it funny. And so uh, thus the Fancy Lad character was born. And Dan said, oh, we need to have some sound because uh, Pablo Torre of ESPN used to have a little sound that would play whenever he would use some highfalutin language. And so uh, a listener actually came up with a little sound that said Chris Whittingham is a fancy lad, and I've been branded that ever since. So help me out with something here. Occasionally on social media, a a listener will say something about you being a serial killer. (laughs) What's that about? Um, So during the 24-hour marathon that we did to launch our partnership with DraftKings, um, 
Well, I mean, first off, I have very odd behavioral traits. I have talked before on the Levitard show about setting my alarm, not with my phone, but with my stove. I actually yes. set a timer. Uh, I actually, I do that. I've talked about wearing hair gel to bed uh, because I don't like my hair not being gelled. I have, th there's some oddities about me. So I was already kind of laying the groundwork for this. But uh, so we did a 24-hour marathon to launch the Levitard Show's partnership with DraftKings. And we were given uh, the producers between 5 o'clock in the morning and 7 o'clock in the morning to fill time, basically. And so during that segment, I forgot what came up. But it was something about, there was a, a subject, a conversation about killing, and then I asked one of my colleagues, uh, you know, I kind of like looked him a little bit too much in the eye and went like, well, you have children, would you kill for your children? And I guess I said it with such an intensity that uh, I think it was Mike Ryan in the other room goes, oh, you've killed someone. Like, like, and so it became a whole thing that like I was a little bit too serious about that. So uh, yes, between my oddities... And that conversation, uh, every once in a while, uh, people will accuse me of being a, a serial killer. And every once in a while, Jessica Smetana, a former colleague of yours, will just whisper, murder, into the microphone uh, to accuse me of something of which I am not. Good stuff. Um, my last question is, what are all the different soccer broadcasting things you're doing this year? So this year, I've actually pared it down quite a bit. Uh, mm -hmm. because, you know, my Levitard show responsibilities basically got to a point where it's like, I need, I can't, I can't do, uh, uh, the, <laughs> the Comable Sudamericana anymore. I need to, I need to figure out what are my main assignments going to be. Uh, so I'm doing, uh, Inter Miami for both radio and TV. Uh, there'll be some radio, there'll be some TV. Um, and yeah, Univision's coverage of MLS. Uh, every once in a while, I might pop up. Like I did a CCL game the other day. Um, Vista World Link is, is really good to me. And so every once in a while, they ask me to do some things. And I'll do some things for them. Some MLS Next. Uh, some NWSL maybe this year. Um, but those are my main assignments. If you want, I can go through like every league that I've ever covered, which uh, <laughs> I've written down once before. And it's fairly bonkers. Uh, I, so I started with the NASL. Um, I have done the Chilean Domestic Cup, the Chilean League, the French Ligue 1, uh, Serie A, I did once. I did Comebol, both World Cup qualifiers and the Sudamericana, never uh, World Cup, uh, never uh, Libertadores. I've done CONCACAF World Cup qualifying. I did a FIFA Interconfederation playoff between Australia. Oh my God, and who were they playing? Oh, this is gonna kill me. I I forgot. I, I did I did one of those interconfederation playoffs once. Wow. Uh, MLS. I uh, obviously NWSL, USL, USL Championship. Uh, I did a Concacaf Under 15s tournament once. <laughs> um, yeah. I I think I I think I got to all of them. Uh, but yeah, I've 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 done quite a bit, and never once have I done a game. I'm trying to think, have I done a game outside of Miami? I have not. All of this has been oh, wow. in Miami. Yeah. Uh, every single one of these places that I've done a game from, it's it mostly in a closet in Miami somewhere. Well, we got to get you on the road at some point. You have done the podcast with me in Nashville uh, and Cincinnati yes. during, uh, during World Cup qualifying. But, um, well, thanks for giving us a window into a little bit of the Chris Whittingham story. We may have to do a part two at some point, but... Uh, Always a pleasure, Chris. Thanks. More importantly, when do I get to interview you? I have questions. I'm ready to go. I, now you do, apparently. So <laughs> uh, we will discuss this and uh, and see about when that might be. I don't know if the listeners want to hear that, but they, they might. We'll, <laughs> we, we can ask them. But uh, 
But thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Chris Whittingham, producer, pundit, interview guest. He does everything. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.